This is the Podcast Inc. production. Booyah! This is the moment podcasting fans listening around the world have been waiting for. Coming to you not so live from a listening device of your choice. It's time! Podcasting out of this corner, a mixed martial talker, holding no professional record. He stands at six feet one and one half inches tall, weighing in at whatever he feels like, hailing out of Toronto, Ontario, Canada, presenting the sometimes angry, always funny, Self-proclaimed podcasting champion of the world, Steve Fingerstyles! So, welcome to another rendition of the podcast, and welcome to the 200th episode of the podcast. When I started this, I would not have thought that I would gotten here to 200 and plus with the person i am talking to today so let's get right into it we're going to skip the products we're going to skip the promo reads we're going to skip everything i need to spend time talking to this man so let's get right into this so this week's guest has competed in such promotions as the ufc pride fc the nwa and the wwf the only ufc triple crown champion three-time gold medal award winner in freestyle wrestling two-time NWA World Heavyweight Champion, the first and only man to simultaneously hold an MMA and pro wrestling championship with over 100 professional MMA victories, the legend, the original, the MMA pioneer and UFC Hall of Famer, Dan, the Beast Severin. <laughs> wow. <laughs> How are you, my friend? How was that for an introduction? You know, I mean, it's kind of like, that was that was one of the more elaborate ones I've ever had. You know? So, you know, life life is good. That's probably the best way to say it. Life is good. I've uh, I'm not resting on my laurels by any means. I'm still you know, catching me. I'm, I'm in my office. I should do like a little panoramic view here. I, I may do that here in a moment. But uh, <laughs> it's uh, I stay busy. I'm still in my work attire because I've been outside doing. Uh, Tripping of hedges and uh, doing things that are in preparation of winter coming. So, exactly. Well, before we get into your illustrious career, because obviously everyone knows I'm a huge MMA and pro wrestling fan. Again, at age 62, why are you still working? You are the goat. You are the legend. You are the man. What's going on? You know, Steve, I I like what I do, and I like. The fact that uh, I, I, I'm a, I can do whatever I want to do. Okay. And it's because of that that drive and determination that I, 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 you know, things that I've learned at a very young age that has carried with me. Um, I mean, literally through my entire life. But it's, uh, as I hold up this, this is what I call my portable brain, my planner. 
Right. And uh, I've actually I've actually lived out of a planner since my junior year in high school, which means the eleventh grade. Wow. So I've been working out of a planner since eleventh grade. That's how that's how many decades that I have been living a crazy lifestyle, but it has it has worked for me. It's paid for an education. I've traveled the entire United States and right. let's face it, two of those states are hard to get to, Alaska and Hawaii. Well, yeah. I've been to Alaska I think four or five times. I've been to Hawaii probably six or eight times. So right. and all the rest, they're they're all done. So you live in Michigan. So from all the travels around all the states, you chose to stay still in Michigan. You didn't want to live anywhere else in the states. No, 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 no. I actually, I, I have, I have a couple of different, uh, a couple of different residences where I reside. Okay. I'm born and raised. I'm born and raised in Michigan. I went to college at Arizona State. Right. So for for a solid decade, from seventy six to eighty six, I lived out in Arizona. Mm. Uh, five years as a student athlete, I registered one year. Uh, then five years as a wrestling coach at Arizona State University, and then a job opportunity to coach at Michigan State University came up, and that's how I came back to my home state. So I have family and friends in both states, and uh, so I this this will be honestly this will be my first year ever mm-hmm. that. Predetermine-wise, when I see the first snowflake <laughs> come down from the sky, right. I shall scamper <laughs> towards Phoenix, Arizona. Gotcha. So I will, I will literally live the lifestyle of a snowbird this year. I say that like that, but right. I travel probably 40-some-odd weekends out of the year. That's crazy. And it's... Uh, I'll say that, and so I say that while I'm here in Michigan, this is my hub of operations, mm-hmm. and uh, when I'm in uh, Arizona, Fountain Hills will be my hub of operations, because I'll be there usually during the work week, but, but by Thursday or Friday, I will be heading somewhere, because the seminar circuit is what I do most, working with law enforcement, corrections, air marshal, former patrol, military, but when it comes to teaching amateur wrestling, Inside the United States, uh, we do folk style. We're the only country that does folk style. Right. Uh, but then um, most of our young athletes finally learn upon college graduation. So they're 21, uh, 22 years of age, and they now they realize the only way to, to represent the United States in, say, the Pan American Games or the World Championships or the Olympic Games mm-hmm. is through freestyle or Greco-Roman. So now they're 21-22 doing only one style at this point. So that's where the United States doesn't do that well in placing or winning gold medals. I mean, we'll, we'll usually place a few people. Every mm-hmm. once in a while we'll pull off a gold medal. But that's because we're 21 to 22 years behind the eight ball where mm-hmm. other countries win. The, the young men and women are four or five years of age. They start to learn freestyle record with them. So, gotcha. The, the United States really should just do away with our folk style altogether. It should be just a base of freestyle and then dabble with Greco on top of that. Well, speaking of wrestling, first time I saw you was your debut fight in the UFC, at UFC 4, obviously. And everyone knows you come from a wrestling background. But you also have a background in judo, jujutsu, and sambo. So, first, when did you know you wanted to fight? And second, when did you start with all those other disciplines? Well, 
the ironic part on this Thursday, I've actually never been in a fight in my entire life. Okay. But, but I have been a competitor because a lot of people say, well, what about the Ultimate Fighting Championship? And I go, to me, that's a competition. Okay. I mean, even though, uh, you know, your, your, your viewers, your more, your younger viewers now, they're only used to, to watching MMA, which stands for Mixed Martial Arts. Right. Mix, the term Mixed Martial Arts that only came about, uh, I think, somewhere in the early 2000s did that term ever come about. True. Um, prior to that, it was known as NHB, which stood for No Holes Barred. That's right, yeah. The current product of Mixed Martial Arts has either 47 or 49 rules to it today. Right. Back in the No Holes Barred era, or the Pioneer era, or when it first began, there were only two rules that you had to abide by. No biting, mm-hmm. no eye gouging. Right. Into the rules. No time <laughs> limits, no weight classes. So you could have matches that go on forever. There was no standing of the athlete so that if someone got taken down to the ground, they wouldn't be there until uh, they gave up. They were either unconscious, knocked out, or whatever. Uh, that's how the premise of the uh, Ultimate Fighting Championship in the beginning, they wanted ultimate victory. Right. They didn't want to be to be determined by uh, a judge. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I should say judges because there's three judges. Right. They wanted it really to be determined between the two athletes. So I don't even remember what the original question was, but I simply I deviated off into a couple of ways. I have a tendency is it's not an old age thing there. I just want you to know that it's not <laughs> an old age thing. It's just that I I start going into there and, and each interview is a little bit different to me because of course it always depends on how you ask the question. Right. It might actually bring up a, a new thought or a new memory that has been locked back into the you know, dark hole of space known as my brain. Well, I, well the, for the original question actually was, when did you know you wanted to be a competitor, I guess is a better word. Oh. How about that? Well, okay. Th- that I knew, I found out in high school. Oh, okay. Uh, again, not, again, not being a fighter or nothing like that. Right. Uh, again, to set the stage for your, your, your audience there, you got to realize I have seven other brothers and sisters. Whew. I am son number two. Okay. Second man, second man on the totem pole. <laughs> so, ever the thought of asking mom or dad for money to go to college never, never even crossed my mind because there was no money to ask for. Right. I had seven other brothers and sisters, so mm. my. I'd say my freshman year in, in uh, high school, I was you know basically doing what every other athlete was doing. I wasn't doing nothing more, nothing less. Right. And uh, but a couple of my buddies had older brothers, and they went into into military. Right, right. And they went for for like four years, came out, and then they went to college on the, the GI Bill. Mm. And so I thought, well, there's there's my first option. That's what I would do because again, I'm not going to ask mom or dad. I'll just graduate. Going to military, get out of military, go to college on the GI Bill. Right. But by my by my sophomore year, mm. uh, the first of the college coaches started talking to me. They actually thought my older brother and I. They thought we were sort of twins because we we're so close okay. and, and size and stuff like that. Right. Um, and uh, so when, when when college coaches started talking about a potential scholarship, mm-hmm. now. Option number two came into effect. So that's when I'll say that from my freshman year on, I really applied myself to athletics, but it was only because uh, I started 
I started reading more and more about the sport of amateur wrestling. Mm. So I always, I'll go off and get another tangent. I, I work, I work with a lot of athletes. Right. Now my ratio of dumb jocks <laughs> to smart athletes is a little lopsided sure. at times. Of course. And more of them fall into the category of the dumb jocks. I hate to say this, but, but it does. Right. It's uh And I, I, I literally, I have a gift. My gift is, is physical mechanics. Mm-hmm. I can actually make people better. Two things I can't give them, though. I cannot give them a heart. Of course. And I cannot give them the, the determination that they, they need. As mm-hmm. a coach, I have worked with athletes that inside the practice room, they were the king of the man inside the practice room. Mm-hmm. But the moment that you put them out, in front of an audience, it's like, they choke. Right. They just choke. Yeah. And then, and then there's other guys inside the practice room. They can't walk across that mat without tripping over a painted online. And yet you put them up in front of a crowd. And it's like, dun, dun, dun. they just rise to the occasion. So it's, it's uh, most people fall somewhere in between the two. Oh my goodness. Okay, so you've also managed, I'm glad that you bring up uh, teaching kids and how to fight and all that, but you also managed the likes of Don Fry and also founded an MMA promotion where you gave a platform to people like Rampage Jackson, Sean Shirk, and Rashad Evans. Now, you usually see this when someone retires from MMA. What was going through your mind and why did you want to do this while you were still in the sport? Well, again, I, I, I wasn't making money that the athletes were making to yeah, you know, look at, but again, I, I'm not, I'm not griping about it. I mean, that's, I mean, uh, <laughs> see, the first time I walked inside the octagon, okay, my guarantee. So UFC number four, yes, my guarantee to walk in that octagon cage was one thousand dollars. Get out of here. Okay. Yes, and for one thousand dollars. I signed a contract that even at the bottom of the contract, it's smaller print. It stated, in the event of your accidental death. Now, let's see. As long as I don't (laughs) stick a finger in your eye socket or bite you, I think there's a whole lot of other ways you can take someone's life without ever violating those two rules. Sure, of course. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So, I I told people that... uh, yeah, my carcass is worth more than a thousand dollars, but I, you know, so I, I did not make great money. So to me, I looked at it as a hobby. Ah, uh, okay. You know, I mean, it's I, I, I did that as a hobby. My professional wrestling in the beginning, it did not have any real money to it. So it's kind of like going, I did those two things, right? And then on top of that, I had my own training facility going. I was teaching amateur wrestling and. And other things on top of that, mm-hmm. and uh, that was that was my life. Then I started, and then as more things came into it, I just kept adding more and more things. So as you progressed through the UFC, like you said, you mentioned there was a contract and everything. Was there any clause in where you needed to come back, or was it just literally per event back then? Well, it, it was per event, but uh, it, the one clause that they did have it, it, that as long as you finished in the top two people you would automatically be asked to come back. You, didn't, oh. you, you did not have to, but you would automatically be asked to, if you'd like to come back. So right. I, I always tell people that, you know, 
you know, you and I had a chance to speak a little bit off off camera for a moment there. Yeah, yeah. And that's what uh, your audience. Um, <laughs> I don't. I'll be brutally blunt about things. I okay. mean, that's one thing about dance. I'm, I'm, I'm basically a, a brutally honest individual, <laughs> almost to the point that you might give you a, a, a nosebleed a few times there. I'll give you hit you with your head butter truth. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but uh, I, I I've done things that no other human being has ever done before. Right. And it's uh, maybe two. First off, I started a cage fighting career. I used the term cage fighting because it wasn't MMA at the time. It was no yep. holes barred. Yep. And, but most of the audience will, they, the, they, they won't be, be aware of what NHB or no holes barred is. So I just say mm-hmm. cage fighting uh, type, uh, career. I was basically just, I was closer to 37 than I was to 36. So I basically, I always tell people, I started my cage fighting career at 37. You don't start a cage fighting career at 37. You retire. You retire from it, right? Um, and but that's when I started, and I went 20 years beyond that. Yeah. So to do that, and then you realize, I you know, in a 20 year career, I did two training camps. Once, once for 32 days, UFC number five, right. And once for 35 days for the ultimate, ultimate. And the rest of the time, I just taught classes and I showed up. I was just glad that some of the countries I was in, that they always announced it both in their country's language, but then also announced it in English so that this is this would literally be maybe 20, 30 seconds before we're ready to fight that I, I just now find out, okay, all right, He's, they're, they're announcing his, he's a kickboxer this, he's a Muay Thai that, so I'm like, okay, now watch out for more, more striking from him, not right. so much good in grappling skills, or maybe I, he's a jiu-jitsu this, okay, now I gotta look at more grappling ability than, so I was literally, I came up with my game plan, in mm-hmm. mere seconds before, you know, Big John would like, be looking at you go, let's get it out or something like that, right. so it was, I had to think pretty quick on my feet, but then a lot of people would always ask you, well, what are you, what do you think about, I go, there, there comes a point, I no longer think, I simply react and do, because the moment that two people start moving towards each other, at some point they stop, Right. and then that's when, when, when they, the, the chess game starts to, starts to commence, and the moment that you take your fight stance, I no longer have to think, I react and do, because I, I know exactly what I'm going to do, if I know you're a striker, and you take your fight stance, I know which direction I'm going to move. If you're a grappler, and you take your stance, just the opposite. Right. There's a, there's, there's a lot that goes into it to where I'll, I always tell people that I only did two training camps, but I have a mind, I, I have a mind like no other. I will put my mind up against anybody, and uh, they will... If there's a way to electronically put your some uh, different types of electrodes stuff like this mm-hmm. and go go head to head, I would make probably most people's mind go. <laughs> oh man! Well, I'm not eating my caffeine yet. There. <laughs> <coughs> so, what did you prefer more? Did you prefer going into a cage or going into a ring? What was your thing? Well, they both have benefits. Uh, to them, uh, okay. a, a, a boxing ring, and, and like say in Brazil, mm-hmm. they have a, a boxing ring, but they, they, it'll have 
ropes, the, the, the normal three or four ropes, right. but the bottom rope will have a like a mesh netting, like a fish net yes. that goes from the bottom rope down so that if you should hit the ground, you're not going to slide out underneath it and fall out on the ground. Right. So that's the one, the one big difference that, that they'll have there. Um, I've been out, I've actually been on old mats uh, as well. Again, hmm. just different countries, they, they, they had some different types of format. The UFC... You know they have the uh, uh, the the the, the, uh, the not the copyrights, but they have the, the oh the, the octagon, yeah, the yeah, trademark. The trademark on the octagon cage. So yeah. anybody else has have to have more or less sides of, yeah. of a cage wall. That's all it really boils down to. And sometimes, sure. you know, especially in the beginning, some cage fences were high, some were low, and uh, they uh, there's a, a work in progress because you know. The, uh, the cages that that the USC has now it's a it's a rubber coated uh, plastic coated type of uh, fencing material so it's again it's a little bit more forgiving mm-hmm. and I've been in other uh, cages where it's metal and it has barbs onto oh. it and it's, they're just you know, just tearing it right out so it's I've seen a lot of evolution of the sport when it comes to the materials even the gloves and things of that nature. Well, speaking so, of evolution, I want to go backwards. What do you want to see that was Back in the day, that's not right now in today's MMA. Well, I mean, well, I I think what would be really interesting it would be to see the tournament format. Ah, okay, gotcha. Now, now the sport again has evolved greatly to where even back in the no host bar days, if you go back to, to the early tournaments, especially that very first tournament, there was so much downtime because they, they did not realize how long would a match go. Mm. And right. back during the no host bar era, the average match was two minutes twenty two seconds. That's it. A very, a very violent. Yeah. Two minutes twenty two seconds. Of course. But, but you know they were, they had already set up for unlimited time. So that all of a sudden, when you have a match, goes you know only a couple minutes, and you and you look at like a t- today's, uh, a championship match. Mm-hmm. Is five rounds, five minutes each round. There's 25 minutes, yeah. and you got one minute break in between those rounds. You, you, you look at basically a 30 minute window, and it could be done in two minutes, three minutes time frame. Right. So back in the very first UFCs, and if anyone ever goes a chance to look at some of the uh, archive stuff that the UFC has, mm-hmm. um, you'll see that the 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 play by play commentators are like going. Uh, they're looking at each other like, "What do we talk about?" Because <laughs> they don't, they don't have filler material. Right. They don't have, they don't have any training tidbits of these individuals. That's they don't so have any previous matches onto them. It's like the internet today. You can, if the moment that you know who you're going to be fighting, mm-hmm. you can simply look them up, right? And you can of find course. out what their stats are. You can probably find clips onto them. Back then, they did not have that. Even mm-hmm. when you look at Here's something again. That, that, again, I'm not sure if you're aware of this right now, but um, back during that time frame, they had a a Friday night press conference. Okay. So if the show's on Saturday night, they have a Friday night press conference. Not a way in because there's no weight classes. Right. So a Friday night press conference. So they have to eight men because women were not competing at this time. So they have to eight men there, and they be at this press conference, and then they have a mediator in the beginning. And they would be going down the line, they're going, athlete number one will be standing up. Okay, this is Hoist Gracie. Hoist Gracie stands this tall. He weighs approximately this much. He hails from Rio de Janeiro, mm-hmm. and his background is 
you know, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, something like that. Okay, so just give it, then, okay, please sit down. Uh, contestant number two, you know, uh, Ken Shamrock, you know, going height, weight. So basically, they're right. giving you height, weight, mm-hmm. age, you know, where they're from and what, what their background is. Yes. After they did the eight men, they would then pull out a bingo ball machine. Oh, wow. Okay. A bingo machine that had eight balls in it, and each one had a number. Oh, so they do it that. Okay, so it had, it had your I should say, it actually, it had your name on it. Is okay. what it was. Or, so they would spin the machine, right. and they pull out, okay, okay, athlete number one, and they had an eight-man bracket, okay, athlete number one, Hoist Gracie, spin it again, okay, boom, Mark Coleman's name, again, I'm just, I, I, I pull out random names, but yeah. then, so less than 24 hours before you are going to climb into the cage, That's you nice. find out who your first opponent is. Oh my goodness, see, I thought it was all predetermined once you guys signed a contract, you knew who you were going to fight, not like this, wow. You, you, you know that now, yes. Yeah, of course. But back then, you did not know the other seven men who were going to show up. That's crazy. And, and, and on top of not knowing who the seven men are, not until less than 24 hours, Friday night. <laughs> right. You're, you're at the, the press conference. Bingo ball machine comes out, spin around. You finally find out who you're fighting. See, actually, you got something going there. What if we did that today with today's MMA stars? <laughs> uh, my question to you is, would any of them even do that? True. Well, especially not the ones that are on the big-time show. Maybe the, the the guys who are still doing in the gyms and just getting started and they want a shot at something, they have nothing to lose, why not? But someone who has a name, I seriously doubt you're right. Yeah, yeah okay, that's... yeah. That you're, you're exactly right. I, I don't think that they would, uh, they would not risk that. <laughs> so is there, okay, I have to ask too, I know everyone, you've probably answered this to the moon and back, but I need to know personally myself, who was your toughest opponent in an MMA ring or cage? Well, my, uh, my uh, toughest opponent would be another grappler. Oh, Okay. Again, I, I can't. I'm really not saying a, a person, but it would right. be a category because I I, I came to the uh, to the Ultimate Fighting Championship as a world class wrestler. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, I, I I told you there that I had my two training camps. You, there is actually a third training camp, but it was a training camp for it was for UFC number four. Okay. But if you if, if you would have had a cameraman there to film it, it would have been all comedy, <laughs> because it was, uh, um, I think it's either four or five. Day, no, yeah, I think four or five days. Okay. Of uh, uh, basically about of an hour and a half a day, I oh. drove from Coldwater, Michigan, over to Lima, Ohio, mm. and uh, I did my training at Al Snow's professional wrestler. Al Snow's Body Slammers Gym in Lima, Ohio. Wow, of course. I know who Al Snow is. A professional wrestling ring was the closest thing I could find to a cage. Ah. Now, again, back then, again, back then, the only cage was in the Ultimate Fighting Championship. Of course. Fast forward to today, you can go into almost any community and you can find a gym that has either a full cage or a section cage. Right. And they'll, they'll say that, yeah, we teach cage wall tactics and all kinds of stuff right there. Right, Most right. of those gyms 
most of the chimps can't even spell UFC, let alone teach it. So, I mean, that's, that's, that's the brutality of the beast here right now. I just tell them, like, I seize it. Love it. But, uh, so my first, my really my first training camp for that, that, that like I said, like, uh, an hour a day for about five days was in Lyme, Ohio, with Al Snow and two other professional wrestling trainees. Right. And they had one old pair of boxing gloves between the three of them, so... One guy would come in and try to punch and kick and do whatever submissions he could do. Right. And then he, he, as he got tired, he would train out the next guy. And next guy. I, basically, I stayed in the ring the whole time. Wow. I may grab a, a grand water, but I always tell people I never, I never trained a single punch. I never trained a single submission. Um, oh, I used this amateur wrestling technique. So mm. when I did show up at the press conference, they had uh, people that were writing down your information. So they have people that would say, okay, uh, your, 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 again, your name, your, your weight, your height, uh, where did, where do you hail from? I mean, where, where do you live? Right. Uh, where do you come from? And then they're like, then they're like, the first time I ever, I was asked this question, what's your martial art? Cause I had, I had never been asked a question like that. <laughs> and I, I just paused for a moment. And I just, I looked at the gallery, like I, 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 I'm an amateur wrestler. Right. And, she had never heard of the category of just being an amateur wrestler. Right. And she, she kind of like paused for one. She like looked left to right. And she could kind of lean forward. She goes, what exactly does that do? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then I, I just, I kind of mimic her. I, I kind of look, look, look left to right. And I, I lean forward. I go, you might want to watch. I'm making this up as I go. Wow. And, and awesome. which I mean, I was, because I only trained for five days, you know, well, you said it. I just can't believe how you said that you never trained any sparring. I've assumed you never sparred then. You didn't do any training submissions, but yet you hold knockout victories. You hold submission victories. Again, was this all on the fly? You just saw Lim and just kept tugging until he tapped? Uh, Steve, you might be. Uh, you sort of kind of get inspired. When you're inside of a cage and, and someone is trying to hurt you. <laughs> ah, there it is. There, I mean, but again, I, I look at it in athletics. In athletics, there is a point in all matches, especially if if it's a, a combative art like that where, where you're striking or something like that, right. There's there comes a point in time of fight or flight. Mm-hmm. You either, if, if someone hits you or is getting the better of you, do you turn and run? Or does it fire up something inside of you and you engage it for all your worth? Well, I always tell people, I did not make up my ring name. It was given to me by the legendary NFL Hall of Famer, Jim Brown. Oh, there you go. So he was one of the play-by-play commentators for American football. So I I have to make sure I say that American football because if I say football... Everyone's like, going, soccer? How does soccer have anything to do with this? No, no, it's American football is American football. Soccer is a, a different sport here in, in the United States. So, But uh, he was one of the play-by-play commentators for the Ultimate Fight Championship for probably, I'll say, three, four different events. Okay. And, and in his own words, he said, he goes, Danny goes, the first time I met you, I did not think that much about you. Because he says, you're... He goes, you're a very soft-spoken type of an individual. He mm. goes, you were the only guy to show up to the press conference wearing a sports jacket and a tie. Wow. 
everyone else was wearing like tank tops, you know, muscle tight guards, stuff like this. And then they, they, they saw me with the, the funny part is they saw me when walking around with Al Snow. Right. They all thought that Al Snow was me because he was wearing, you know, he had the hair, he had the, the muscles, he wearing the shirt, yeah. stuff like this. They all the thought that was me. So uh, until the, they were calling the, the contestants up there to go sit down in front of their nameplate, and then all of a sudden I'm sitting up there and, and Al Snow sitting out in the crowd. So it was right. kind of, you know, comical in a lot of ways. Oh, my goodness. That's hilarious. That is hilarious. Okay, and lastly, uh, one more thing I want to touch on MMA before we transition to pro wrestling because with Al Snow, that's a perfect gap right there. You also were in the first Pride event ever. Now, how was it fighting in Japan for the first time? And was it hard to adjust to anything? Or were you off? Like, did anything bother you? Or was it just another day at the office? Well, again, I, I don't know how many trips I've made to Japan. I know I'd, I'd already made uh, a few trips to Japan during my amateur wrestling career. Uh, okay. So I've been there as an amateur wrestler. Again, that's why I say that my, my domestic career... Uh, fails in, in comparison to my international career helped me a lot more in preparation of climbing into a cage fighting career than, than anything else. Wrestling inside the United States is nice. Right. It's civil. Uh, you can speak the language <laughs> and no one's, not too many people have hidden agendas. Well, international competition is a whole different animal. Mm. Uh, especially realizing I started competing while we're still in the Cold War era, mm. so you, you've got you've got Russia, then known as the USSR, right. and uh, they're, they're they're kind of like the bully on the block here right now. <laughs> now they're puffing up their chest saying, "Yes, we've got we've got uh, you know uh, nuclear power uh, capabilities," and you got the United States also puffing up their chest. Yeah, yeah, we got we got nuclear power there too. It's kind of like you know, a couple of bullies on the block here right now puffing right. up their chest, posturing posturing towards each other, and. Uh, <laughs> No one's no one's pulling the you know, pushing the buttons and stuff like that. Right, and it, through a lot of ways, countries were trying to show their um, their power, their uh, their might through athletics. Mm. Um, there were you know when I when I used to travel to a lot what, what was known as the the old Eastern Bloc of, of countries, you didn't get a very fair shake from the referees. Mm. Uh, there would always be three referees. You have a, a main referee that is actually on the mat right. with you and, and as, as close, will be the closest to all the action. Then you'll have two side referees that are sitting on one side, on the other side, so they, they, they look at advantage points. So whenever the main referee would call for points, and, you know, if a takedown was being uh, secured or something like this, or put them towards their back and they fight back up. Anytime that they were just points were being scored, at least two out of the three referees always had to have an agreeance. Uh, you know, one guy might show, yes, you got a one point takedown. And if the other two uh, say no, then you didn't get your points. So yeah. again, when you, when you deal with the old Eastern Bloc countries and most of the referees were from Eastern Bloc, like you might be at the score and I might be just turning my head this way and scratching and looking away at that point. I mean, you just saw stuff that was pretty blatant. So I was, I was used to knowing that I'm not walking out the bat, knowing that I'm not going to get a, a fair shake, right. but then also knowing that I was going to get booed just because I'm wearing an American uniform. Right. He says, you know, I mean, America represents a lot of different things, different countries, sure. and a lot of it is 
we represent a great deal of freedom, a great deal of opportunity to yep. do practically anything, including stupid stuff. You know, we, we allow our yep. citizens to use their rights to do stupid stuff. And uh, <laughs> too much of that's going on lately. We need to get a few more rules in there. <laughs> oh, well, okay. now transitioning to your wrestling, your pro wrestling career. Okay, well, <clears throat> being up here in Canada... When you first started off in the NWA, we weren't getting that programming. Like, everyone knows Canada is like Hogan country, as they called it. We were strictly WWF at the time. That's all we were accustomed to, right? So the first introduction to you in pro wrestling to myself was when that whole angle, you coming out with the invasion with NWA. And the moment you came out with all those belts, I swear to God, that legitimized you. And it was like... Who is this bad motherfucker coming out and what is he going to do here now? Like, that was so brilliant. Like, whose idea was that? I know you were paired with Cornette. Like, uh, yeah. talk well, us through I, all that. I think, I think Jim Cornette had a lot to do with it. Okay. Uh, Jim Jim was really, he was part of the creative team. So creative team, you know, they come up with different ideas of, of how to, if your character's not getting over, they'll take you off uh, camera for a little bit. They'll, they'll retool you with a, maybe a new outfit, a new uh, angle. You could be go from a, a baby face good guy maybe to a heel bad guy. Sure. I mean, there's there's all kinds of ways that they, they used to really work with the athletes to try to help them along in, in their careers. And, and the, you know, But then they're also, the cycle of the, of the, the rest of it is, you might have been a good good guy that you got pushed to limits and now you go over to the dark side for a while. Right. Then after a while, being in the dark side, it's kind of like going, I, I, I have to repent my way and go back to being the good guy again. So, I mean, of course. you, you got to love professional wrestling for the drama and uh, I always call it the male soap opera yep. of the industry. So I, I always enjoyed it for, for, for that, that aspect. But I really enjoyed having uh, Jim Cornette involved because he was he has been involved on a couple of occasions. Like originally, to have the NWA belt put on me in the first place, mm -hmm. uh, NWA National Alliance belt, again, that, 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 that organization probably has the oldest history inside the United States right. than any other organization. Yep. Uh, there was a point in time when that belt would only go on capable shooters. And that meaning, uh, for the people that, that are watching and that don't know, that means someone of true capabilities. Right. Because when they would be running shows at these various fairgrounds and the announcer would be out there saying, any man, woman, or child that can last just five mm. minutes with the champ gets right. $10,000. That was legit. Yeah, knowing yeah. that whatever poor slob climbed through those ropes, <laughs> the champ was going to put down hard and fast. Right. And so when Billy Bob goes back up into the stands, <laughs> bloodied, battered, and bruised, the people all thought, it's got to be legit. Look what just happened to one of our own. And that was the premise that Professor Russell was built upon. Knowing that, okay, from the, from that point on, you know that they're doing all their their showmanship and picking up and slamming and stuff like this. But the uh, the thing that has, I, I was getting, I, I actually was looking for my cell phone. Forgot, I forgot, <laughs> I was, I'm using it right now. The cell phone era, the internet era, right. has taken all of that away. That mystique, it has, yeah. Because back in the, the old territorial era, you could have been out west. Mm -hmm. Uh, doing uh, a series of matches for, let's say, six or eight months, maybe up to a year. And then there's that 
loser leaves town match yes. and you lose and you literally did lose you you headed off out of town but then you might go to the east coast yep. go to some northern territories go to some southern territories so mm -hmm. i really i really wish i would have been around during that era because i think that would have been the area era that would have suited me the best Almost, I could just see you, you Dan Severin in his prime against Bruno San Martino in his prime. What a match that would be! For example, I had never met Bruno San Martino before. Okay, out of the blue, mm -hmm. I, I mean, I, I, was, I, I had the the be strap for for a little while there. Okay, yeah. out of the blue, Bruno San Martino calls me up. Oh wow! Okay. I'm thinking, how did he get my cell phone number? <laughs> I'm thinking myself. He calls me up out of blue and he says, he goes, young man, he goes, I hear all the good things that you, you're doing. Yeah. with the belt and then you bring a lot of integrity back to the championship and stuff like that he goes nice. keep up the good job i'm thinking wow and so you know like one of the first times that uh i happened to be at one of these comic cons or something like that sure. I, I i knew that he was there and i went over and i introduced myself and right. uh i mean and that was anytime that I, I knew i'd see him i would go over and out of my way just to make sure that i shook his hand and stuff like that he I, he really appreciated that that i would, I would do that kind of stuff wow so, and again, speaking of shooters, right? If you got in the ring with him, he would have stretched you out if you were a fan, right? Yes, yes sir. <laughs> but uh, again, that's why I ended up meeting people like Lou, Lou Thez as, as well. Another one, yes. So, yep. And I always tell people that as, as many times as what Ric Flair always claimed to be the man, Lou Thez was the man because he had a chokehold on the NWA belt for almost a solid decade. I also met over J Japan is when I first met Lou Thez, right. but along with Billy Robinson at the Another same time. Yes. And they really enjoyed watching me. They're like going, they just, they really enjoyed watching the mechanics, how I mechanically was taking people apart. Mm -hmm. And I, and they're like, what, they're like, what do you call that? I go, I go, that's called fulcrum, fulcrums and levers. <laughs> and I make it, they're like, they smiled. I, I like, most people don't understand what fulcrum and levers are nowadays. Right. But I go, I, I grew up on a farm. I know all about fulcrums and levers. <laughs> well, another memory that stands out in my mind too with your WWF run was the 98 King of the Ring where you made it all the way to the finals against obviously the one and only considered one of the greatest of all time, The Rock. How was it to share the ring with The Rock? <laughs> well, again, it was, you know, he, he was known as The Rock, but he was also a part of the nation of domination. That's right. So yes. there, there were a few different people. There was Mark Henry. There was D'Lo Brown. There was the Godfather. Right. Uh, I mean, there, there was a whole group of guys right there. So it was, I don't know how to put this. Life was just crazy for me at that point in time okay. because there would be, there would be some days there, uh, I mean, I should say some months or Steve, where I would be on the road mm -hmm. 20 some odd days out of a 30 day month. Wow. Or again, I'm waking up in the morning and I have to look at my, portable brain the planner here just to know where am i at and what is my function tonight the real asset aspect was i wasn't exclusive to the wwf oh that's right i was not i was not exclusive because i was working for the nwa yes on a full-time basis mm -hmm. they wanted to make me exclusive i go are you going to pay me to sit home and they're like well no i go then i'm not exclusive and no. i go then okay the, the uh when WWF wanted me, I, I did not want to be a full-time athlete because I knew I knew that they did not realize how old I was. Oh, okay. I knew my age would be be held against me because I heard from a few other people like, don't, don't ever talk about your age and stuff like that because 
you're not even in the category. You're not even within a decade of what they're looking for. That's true. But again, yeah. I did not look my age and did not act in stuff like that. So, I mean, literally, Vince didn't find out how old I was until I was inside the office because I was doing most of my negotiations was was done uh, with, uh, oh, geez, the, uh, the, why am I drawing a blank on the, uh, his right-hand man at the time, uh, Cowboy. Oh, Bob, uh, Bob Orton. Not, no, 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 not, not Bob Orton, but, uh, uh, boy, I, I'm almost ashamed of myself for, for drawing that guy's picture. Right, 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 my mind right now, back that, then, there was the Briscoes, there was Pat Patterson. No, I mean, it was uh, his right-hand man at the time in the office. Did a lot, does a lot of commentary. Actually, has a little barbecue sauce. Like oh, that. Jim Ross. Jim Ross. There you go. There you yeah, go. So a lot of my stuff. I got along great with you. I knew if I said enough stuff, you'd, you'd pop up with it. <laughs> but no, he was he was great to work with and stuff like that. Right. And when I was in office there, and uh, some few more questions were being asked, and all of a sudden, you know, some other realization. Vince was like, "Well, just exactly how old are you?" Right. And I'm like, "Well, I was, uh, I think, 48 at the time," Whew. and. Uh, and uh, Vince looks right at Jim Ross and goes, well, Jim, he goes, who's our oldest rookie ever? And then Jim points, points, at, points at me and goes, Dad. I go, but, but again, I did not look my age, nor did I act my age. Of so, But again, I, I was not, not exclusive, but not, on top of working for these professional wrestling companies, I was still fighting. I was fighting. So literally, I might be doing a cage match right. one weekend. So even while doing us professional wrestling, that's what TNA, they were doing Wednesday night pay-per-views. They started doing yes. these Wednesday night pay-per-views. Mm-hmm. And they called me because they had they had such poor uh, poor turnout for the very first pay-per-view. They wanted mm-hmm. to do a uh, uh, championship match right out of the box where a champ's got to re- uh, you know, defend the belt. Sure. And I, I used to keep my schedule up on my website. Okay. And... Uh, I, you know, they contact me, they, they need me to, I can't be there. I go, I'm already slated, I'm going to be somewhere in uh, Texas. I'm going to be climbing into a cage that same night. Right. And anyway, I can't be in two places at the same time. They're like, well, we really need you. If we, can, if we can't get you, we're going to we're gonna strip the belt from you or something like that. I'm like, mm. well, strip it away then because I already have, I already have an agreement. I got, I'm going to be someplace. I go, that, but that's where... That's where I, I have some hard feelings in, in certain areas. That would be one of them. Uh, okay. For the fact that, you know, you I've already given my word that's going to be somewhere else. Did, mm-hmm. I, did I sign the contract? No, I did not. Right. But I'm a man of integrity. Yep. And we don't have enough of integrity nowadays, period. Mm-hmm. People, you got to hit them with 10 pages of contracts right. and the whole nine yards. And even then, how much money do you want to spend in court on top of that? So I, I come, like I said, I would tell people, I come from a different cut of cloth. Mm-hmm. Your word, your word should be something. Uh, your reputation should, should be something. You better watch your P's and Q's because uh, a, uh, it takes a long time to build a great reputation, but mere seconds to destroy. Right. And we live in this era now where everything is posted and you're guilty before proven innocent, whereas before... You're supposed to be innocent until proven guilty. So, it's strange so times that we live in indeed. <laughs> All right, there's two rumors that I've always heard 
while your career was going on about the WWE, and I just want to clear it up with you here in person. Okay, first one is, there's a story out there that the talent was scared of you backstage and no one was talking to you. So I assume no one would even try to like test you or even shoot with you in the ring? Um, in, in, the first, in the first few weeks especially, um, I, again, I... I'm an, I am an observer of people. Ah, I, if, because you're asking I questions, it. I'm very, very talkative. Otherwise, yeah. if I go into a room, I don't usually say anything other than I'll, I'll be courteous. I'll just say hello to people. But I sit back and I watch. Right. And I always say, I will watch and I will watch drama unfold itself. Especially in, in professional wrestling, there's a lot of drama. Of course. So the rule... The rule back then was they wanted talent to show up at the building, you know, some early afternoon, like by, by one o'clock in the afternoon, even though the show wasn't until later on, late that evening, right. they still wanted you to be there. And I kept thinking, why? <laughs> well, after just showing up a few times, I knew exactly why uh, they had rules like that, because not exactly uh, all the talent um, were, were Boy Scouts by any means. Um, it's gotcha. what I found about that industry. Again, I, I again I wrap up the professional industry. There are more ne'er do wells, misfits, nitwits, nincompoops, criminals uh, in that industry than any other industry I have ever been involved in. It's right. I always tell people it's the worst industry I have ever been involved in. Wow! Yet I have. Come across some wonderful individuals, right? But the turds way outweigh the wonderful individuals. Well, I have, but I always, I always compliment professional right. for uh, for awakening a creativity inside myself that I did not think I had, so, and I was able to use some of that creativity, right. even in the cage fighting industry. So I've taken certain things from my professionals and career and I've been able to use it in the cage fighting career and vice versa. So I guess, I, like I said, no one tried to shoot on you for real in any match just to see no, if Dan Severin's the real deal. I had one guy try to really try to take me on oh, okay. in uh, California and he, I mean, as he as he was trying to dive in uh, uh, on a double leg takedown, right. I literally, as he's trying to reach in on, on my legs, I grabbed him right around the waist. So you got to think, but he's bent over. I grabbed right okay. around the waist. I pulled him right on up. I mean, like like a power bomb. Right. But literally, because it was it wasn't part of the way he shot in on me. My adrenaline kicked right in. When you when your adrenaline kicks in, oh. you have greater. Greater capabilities of strength. So, literally, I grab him by the waist as I'm bringing it up. I mean, literally, as he as I'm going up, I actually released, and he's still going up. When I grabbed him by the hips, and I brought him right down, and I call it the power bomb from hell. Oh my goodness! Because the moment he hit that match, the match was done because he couldn't move after that. Oh my I mean, my, my my intent was, you want to change, touch me. I'm going to crush you right here now. I don't again, blame you. Yeah, I'll get much. But I, the guys, I think they, they, it took them for a little while to really kind of figure out. I'm there for the same reason that they're there. But Jim Cornette, he had, you know, he had the, the great ideas of, uh, you know, the the, the NW belt was switched was switched to be um, doing through his organization, Smoky Mountain Wrestling. Right. 
Chris Scantino was the champion at the time, so I was just, uh, you know, happened to be up in the crowd and uh, watch a match and some interaction between Chris and I and, 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 and uh, went into a match later on that evening. So, and like I said, you know, for, for Jim to do something like that on his organization, you know, it, it uh, that meant a lot. Uh, and he used to be really frustrated, like I said, with the creative team that, uh, creative team didn't have a clue what to do with your daddy he goes you're the greatest thing you ever hit professional wrestling you're a wrestler who can wrestle you're not gonna sit up jim knew i wasn't gonna be a mouthpiece i'm not gonna cut promos right i'm not gonna sit up there and flex 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 but i'm going to dismantle people so literally his pitch was let dad just go out there and just take people apart and mirror mirror minutes mirror seconds mirror minutes so basically, he was pitching me. He wanted me to be, uh, oh gosh, okay, uh, Goldberg. He wanted me sure. to be Goldberg before there was ever Goldberg right, in right. WCW. Oh, yeah, I see that. Wow. See, I did not know that. And now the second rumor that I heard out there. Uh, but I think you've been on record on talking about this too. But I'm not too sure. Again, you can't trust the internet nowadays. So, <laughs> was it true that towards the, your tailspin run of WWF that you were asked to tattoo triple six on your forehead and join the Ministry of Darkness? What was being asked of me is that uh, I had a couple road agents okay. that uh, approached me and, and they were starting to pitch me this idea that they're looking at taking me in, in, a, in a new direction right. because I was looked upon as. I'd say I probably fell into more of the category in the beginning as a baby face, mm-hmm. a no nonsense baby face, because right. I wasn't a heel by any means. Yeah. Um, and now they're, and, and I was going out there, Dan, to be severed. Now, now they wanted to pit, they pitched me the idea, just like you said, they wanted me to put 666 across the forehead for the mark of the beast. Ah, there it is. Okay. And they wanted to make me an undertaker disciple, things of that nature. Right. And as they're pitching me this idea, I put my hands up like the OT. I'm going, hey, time out, guys. Sure. Not going to happen. I live in small town USA. Mm. I'm not going to have any repercussions against my family, uh-huh. nor against my businesses, nor against me. I go, you don't realize how many people buy into this stuff. Yeah, especially back then, yes. And- and, and and if if again in my mind I'm thinking if I was to do this, mm-hmm. and then they cut me from the roster, that will be the last that anyone ever knows of Dan Severn. Dan Severn right. has gone crazy. He's got six 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 on his forehead, gone. And then um, I, I I told him no, not gonna happen. Now the road agents are like, well, well, well Dan, you know we we could we could use your poorly then. I go, really? What do you mean? Yeah, he says. Uh, well, we could have you start losing matches. I go. Oh, 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 oh. Where does it say anywhere on my contract? Right. I have to lose to anybody. <laughs> I go. What? 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 What are you going to do, or what are any of my opponents going to do when right. I walk into that world of fantasy? Right. And I turn fantasy into reality. I go. Do you think you have anybody on that roster that's going to come close to me? I go, and so I mean, that's when the, the uh, Royal Rumble was coming up. Oh, okay, yeah. And I was, and the thought crossed my mind. I go, because WCW wanted to be also. Oh, okay. They, they actually, uh, 
Um, I, th- I think WWF first called me on the end, then WCW called me on the end, and Bischoff, uh, you know, really was coming after me pretty aggressively. I mean, basically, basically, almost agreed to all my terms oh, right wow. from the get go. Right. WWF found out, but I was looking for that non-exclusivity. I, I did not want to work for a company for two years. Basically, cut off everything else I'm doing. Yeah. Work for some company for two years, and then have to jump right back in and, and restart my life. But I wanted to be able to keep my life going right along there with it. So, uh, WWF uh, basically agreed to my terms, and, and, and I, I went with them. So, you know, getting back to that that whole aspect right there, uh, that's when I, I don't think they planned that Dan Sever calling them on, uh, you know, hitting them with the trump card, right? And. Uh, <laughs> It was it was like basically um, they paid out my contract mm-hmm. and I no longer had to really show up and do anything. Wow, you see that, and then obviously that was the last time you've been seen on WWF television since, right? Yeah, yeah. Oh wow. Okay. Well, the other thing I want to know. Okay, being a, a legit killer, literally, and coming from mixed martial arts and all that. How hard was it to put, like, the, not the scripted stuff aside? Because I had a former UFC heavyweight, Shamo Korkola, on a few weeks ago. And he, he mentioned the time he was riding up and down the street with some of the wrestlers because he actually thought of getting into pro wrestling. And he couldn't understand how some of these wrestlers were talking about their old matches as if it was real, as if they really got hurt and this is, like, all this sort of stuff. Like, to him, it was just mind-blowing how they thought fiction was real. Now, how was that with you, again, back in the day coming in? What I can say I've had I've had an interesting life in the sense that I've had an amateur wrestling career, a professional wrestling career, a cage fighting career, and I have been hurt worse in my professional wrestling career See than that? anything else I've ever done. Wow! But you're only as good as who you are in the ring with, right? Because it's a it's. It, <laughs> Because I, I travel, I, again, I travel a lot with, with two of the most recognizable belts, the NWA belt and, and the UFC belt. Right. And uh, I always tell people it's history because I'm the first guy to actually hold both belts simultaneously. Mm-hmm. I was the first guy, I, I, I still think, the only guy ever to have had a professional wrestling belt carried out in my entourage. Mm. And that was the NWA belt. Dennis Carluzzo, he's no longer... Uh, here, but right. he was the promoter from New Jersey that actually carried the belt out. He was he was the last guy in the group, and he held the belt up high. And then I had again this word the professional theatrical aspect. I had four other guys and Dennis Carluzzo, and I had the four guys on, on the outside because I wanted to keep the people away from me. Right. I said they were the show because they were dressed in stars and stripes, mm. pants, stars and stripes, shirt. They had T-shirts in, inside their, their inside their, uh, hanging off their pants, uh, pants with this, so they could take them, swing around, and throw them up in the crowd. So I, really? I was using professional wrestling theatrics. Of course. And I said, "You five guys, the four guys around me, and Dennis, you guys are the show. Mm-hmm. Go in there. Don't touch me." I said, "I, I have to stay focused because I have to go and I have to beat three men's asses tonight. Right. If I don't." This is all going to explode in our faces. Mm, I go, true. not going to happen with me here right now because I because I'll stay focused right now. But I don't want people grabbing me, trying to take me out of my realm. I go, you guys are the show. When 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 the when the uh, tournament's done, we'll we'll celebrate that. And then literally when the last match was over, I mean that's when 
you know, I could like let my hair down and right. uh, Miguel and, and Linda, I'm holding up both belts inside the octagon cage. The wow. only time that has ever happened, UFC number five. Wow, nuts! That was also that was also a record because they had never seen a man, your truly here, dismantle right. three other men that quickly in one night. True, too, right? So that was like the two two back to back records on, on the UFC is back then. I just spent the three men in the shortest time ever in, in, uh, on UFC number five. And then coming back to the ultimate, ultimate, I was inside the octagon cage just over one hour wow. between okay. my three opponents. Jeez. Now think about that. One hour, no hose barred rules. <laughs> Only two rules, nobody no eye gouging. Bare right. knuckled still. And then the, to be in that octagon cage, and this was in Denver, Colorado, Mile high elevation, but mm. I did train. I did train for thirty five days. <laughs> so there you go. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, what, what what about today's product? Are you keeping up with what's going on in today's wrestling? Are you involved in it in any some sort? I, I mean, it's, uh, I haven't really watched television in so long. I mean, okay. I will watch a select match here. Sure. There is sometimes, not very often, when I'm traveling, that I will actually turn on the television. I'll channel surf, mm -hmm. and maybe I'll watch, uh, if there happens to be a UFC or, or, or something like that, some matches. I, I might watch a match. Right. Same way like, like WWF or something like this. I might catch and watch a match, and that's it. And then I shut it off. So I'll say that in some, sense, in some aspects... People might be thinking Dan Severn lives in a cave. No, I don't. <laughs> I go, there are two types of people in this world. Sure. There are those who will sit on the sidelines mm -hmm. and they will watch life pass them by. Right. And there's going to be those who are going to be engaging the game and setting the whole new destiny. There will be a time... When, yes, either due to injuries, ailments, or I, when, what I hope for is just old age, mm -hmm. that will force me out of things. And that's what will make me more and more of a sideliner. But at the same token, I hope that doesn't happen to, for quite a few years. I mean, I'm, I'm banking on 125 because I've got enough work right now to stay busy till probably 97, 98. Right. And, uh, you know, then if I start taking it easy. Oh, my goodness. What about, like, going backstage? You haven't visited any of these shows recently or been up? Because, like you mentioned it before, the guys back in the day were a bit rough around the edges, like misfits, criminals, all that. Yeah. Nowadays, it's totally different. You have, like, clean-cut guys. You have video gamers. You have people who have never committed a crime at all in yeah. their lives. You know what I mean? No, so, I just wonder. No, 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 it has changed quite a bit, though. I, again, I, again I, 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 I just set the tone. Of what I of was, course. I was exposed to. You know, guys that were that guys that were still smoking a joint before walking out there. Guys that were pounding a beer. Wow. I mean, I remember walking out once, actually having to hold the hands of my tag team partner because his his mind was so fried he could never made it to the ring by himself. And I'm thinking, wow, somebody's going to put their body into his hands. Right? Oh my God, that just. It's just I, I have I have watched people get hurt knowing that they should not be out there doing what they're doing because they're not capable of doing 
they're not mentally there and they're not physically there. So I don't know. I just, as I said, it, it was just a strange time to be involved in things. But yeah, at the same token, I would have wanted to have been involved in professional back during the, the territorial type days because I think that is the era that I probably belong to the most, you know, that I would fit right into. No, I totally agree. Well, I, I usually end the show with a weird story of the week, but before we get into that, I got another question. So, how you said it, you want to live till 120 or so. So, how are you feeling physically? Have you felt any like downfall from being a mixed martial artist, from being in there grueling and grinding and doing all this stuff? When you really start looking at how many... Because I have people trying to say, well, how many matches do you think you have? Right. I go, well, even on, on the internet, you know, like for MMA matches alone, okay. it has a number out there. But I go, I go that that number's not right, though. And they're like, well, what do you mean it's not right? I go, well, the number's not right because when did Sure Dog, Full Contact Fighter, when did all these different watchdogs of the cage fighting industry begin? Not till like three, four, five years after the UFC began. Oh. And when I go... In UFC number four, I go, I, uh, I, it, it took me almost 45 minutes to get out of the cage okay. because they had never, no match, and at that point in time, like I said, the average match was two minutes and 22 seconds. Sure, yeah. No, and no match had ever gone beyond the four-minute mark. Right. And here, Hoist Tracy and I, we ended up going, like, just over 16 minutes, closer to 17 minutes. In a lot of places, the pay-per-view we made our bear, it just went black. So people did not know who won. So you got all these people calling nice. in, I want my money back. Who won the match? Stuff like this. So that's where the UFC finally had to say, well, gosh, we need to make some changes because we need filler because the matches go short or we need something else. What if a match goes too long? So that's, mm -hmm. you know, Lily, was a, it wasn't all that long before, after that, that they, they had to be, have a time limit mm -hmm. so that they could know that they're purchasing enough pay-per-view time. To, to do things. So I, I always tell people, I've, I've been helping to, I have a teaching degree from Arizona State, and I've been teaching <laughs> in, a, in a lot of different ways how to do things or to uh, get things done. So again, I don't think I really answered the question. I think it went up into another little tangent here or there, but. Uh, <laughs> hey, when you're Dan Severn, you could go into any tangent you want, my friend. <laughs> well, I just, I've, I've got a lot to say there because I've done so many different things. Okay, ma I okay matches. I was talking about matches. Right. So. You know, we look at get cage fight matches. You know, somewhere they, they they say I've got you know right, right around that. I guess I think total match would be like 120 to 130 matches. Right, right. But uh, with us, but I'm thinking there there probably easily is another dozen or more that right. are not accounted for because that's crazy. Before before I got out of that cage, I had all these people come come down to the cage and they were surrounded and they just want they just wanted to touch me. Right. They want to shake my hand. They want to touch me and stuff like that. Right. But all these businessmen are handing me business card after business card after business card. And uh, I, I have these, wow. uh, I had all kinds of promotions contacting me. Mm. And I, and like, for example, this one that contacts me, he says, well, um, he gave me his business card. He goes, uh, uh, actually, no, I'm sorry, he gave me a pager. Most artists will never know what a pager is. A little electronic device uh, that uh, not much bigger than, say, a uh, like a business card, a little pager. You can go beep, beep, beep. Yep, of course. You go to the local, you go to the local payphone. No one's going to know what a payphone is anymore. <laughs> I know. You, you call on the number. So again, it's like I'm talking about stuff that's like going, 
wow, Dan Severn is really old. Is that back to the old, uh, you know, telegraph telephone? Uh, you know, but that was, oh. you know, it was. There's a pager that day. Yeah. Goes off. You, you make the phone call, and it, it, it was a show going to take place over into Mexico. Mm. So they were going to be into Mexico, and they were they wanted to they wanted to use a cockfighting pit. Oh, so sorry. for roosters. Yeah, yeah. Okay, but but, a, but an oversized cockfighting. Gotcha. Pit. Okay. They were going to go with uh, so you'll be in dirt. Yeah, yeah. Dirt and or sand kind of combination. They were going to start off with roosters. Okay. Progress to dogs. Oh my god. And main event with humans. That's nuts. Okay, but now to make it, they wanted to be even badder than what the UFC was. So again, <laughs> no, no rules. Uh-oh. And you could wear Levi jeans and cowboy boots. Wow. So think about being kicked with a cowboy boot to the head or something Oof. like that. Right. So now they're offering a really good payday though. Oh. Okay, a really good payday. <laughs> so, so it was good. It was going to be an eight man tournament. Now, so, so it, it crossed my mind, but I think that it, what, what discouraged me, I didn't do it. Okay. What, during, what discouraged me, I'm thinking, well, if I should win <laughs> and it's time to do the payoff right? and I'm in a foreign country, oh. uh, what's going to be the easiest way of paying me off? Uh, would it be to actually give me the money that they're offering or would it be uh, cheaper just to put a bullet in me? Right, you never know. No kidding. Yeah, exactly. No, again, I've, I've had some, I've had an interesting life where I've I've uh, been with a lot of interesting people. Mm. I'm just glad that all these interesting people really enjoyed being around me. And I'm thinking that's good to have people that like you. <laughs> it's so true. <laughs> so, so it's I, I I turned I turned that event down. So oh, I, again. I don't doubt that you would, man. I don't. I don't think anyone. Again, why would someone with the legitimacy that you have would do something? Again, if it's someone who's just starting off or needs a quick payday, sure. But why take that chance, man? That's just. I've never heard of a story like that, and all the times I've been talking to someone. So that's fin- now leading into the weird story of the week. That's perfect. From cockfights to this. <laughs> <laughs> so so you, again, you mentioned you're well traveled. You've been on airplanes your whole life, pretty much. Now, okay, I don't know if this has ever happened to you or if you know of anything happening to you like this. This is just, I've, when I was reading this, I'm like, I got to bring this up with a guest. So, woman was on her flight. She fell asleep, like most people do. She wakes up, but something woke her up. She was feeling a little warm tinglingness on her right side. She wakes up, she looks over, and it, like her, white, her side is all wet. Then she looks towards where the person next to her was sitting, which was a priest, and notices that this priest was taking a piss on her. Uh, yeah, okay. Uh, was he, uh, like, said any words to go longer with it? Uh, to, uh, uh. Well, here, here's his rebuttal once it all happened and everything. Well, the worst part is, first off, before I, I get to the priest... Now, she had to sit there in her seat. Well, not sit, but she could walk around. But she had to go through her whole flight now, another three hours or so, with piss clothes. She couldn't change. She had nothing to change into, right? And then she also had to sit beside this guy. His rebuttal was that, or his defense was, should I say, that he took a sleeping aid and he didn't know what he was doing. Now, do you believe this guy? (laughs) 
No, not at all. Not at all. <laughs> now, I, ironically, though, <laughs> ironically, there, Steve, I, I've used the phrase before. I go, "Tis better to be pissed off than to be pissed off." Because you got pissed off, so <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Wow. So what's the weirdest thing that's ever happened to you during a flight? Oh, I don't know. I've had, I've had some uh, incredibly uh, uh, flights that I didn't think uh, we were ever going to land. Oh, really? It's, yeah, I, I'll tell you, I'll you with, with one particular flight. Sure. was uh, uh, Again, I don't remember what year or time frame. Okay. It, it was back in time. But uh, upon taking off, as we're, as we're going down the runway and we're, we're about to ready to take that off, all of a sudden, you hear kind of like a mini explosion. You oh, hear wow. something boom or something like this, and we're all, we're all over the runway. Right. But somehow the pilot gets gets up off the ground, and it's the first time I've ever been on a plane where okay, now oh, you know no. you got you got sirens and lights going off. I'm thinking this oh. is not good. This is not good here right now. Right. All this kind of stuff. So he gets us up. He gets us up in the air. Yeah, and we're, we're, we're getting kind of controlled and like going, um, you know. No one knows what's happening. All I want to know is all the passengers. None of the passengers are very happy right now with right. what's taking place. So something happened upon takeoff to the landing gear. That's all oh, they know here right now. Okay. So now we, we're basically at, at, at the same airport because we can't go anyplace because we don't know if we're capable of landing or not. So now oh. we're, taking, we're taking low aerial passes by the airport mm-hmm. so that you got, I don't know, two, three goobers out there with binoculars trying to see what's wrong with landing gear. You want to know how accurate that's going to be from, from you know, how whatever distance away. So what they kind of had figured out, because the pilot is telling us this, that we might have blew, blew up two or three of the tires oh, on the landing gear. Right. On one, on one of the sides. Yeah, yeah. So that, you know, you need so many tires it keep kind of balanced stuff like that in order to land properly stuff like that. So right. now we're up in the air and we're circling, burning off fuel. That's right. Because you're too okay. heavy. Yeah. Okay. Now the next announcement is they're taking us to a auxiliary landing strip. Uh-oh. Otherwise known as the crash and burn strip. Oh, my God. Nowhere's near, nowhere's near the right. airport, yep. nowhere's near civilization so that if mm-hmm. something goes wrong, it goes wrong. Right. And they're, and, and they're, they're prepping us, the, 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 uh, the flight attendants, they're going to announce with, they're like, Holy shit. We, we, we need you to get, when we're coming in for landing, everyone's yeah. got to be uh, bent over, they got to have their arms up like this sure, against yeah, yeah. the seat. Uh, Steve, I am the only person Mm-hmm. Sitting up, <gasps> well, watching, because I, I, this is my thought. Mm. If I'm going to die, I want to see it coming. Sure. And so, as I'm sitting on up and stuff like this, we're coming down to this auxiliary landing strip. Right. As I'm looking out the window, I see fire trucks. Mm. I see ambulances. Wow. I'm like going. This does not look good. Oh I said my, my I said my little prayers and stuff like that. Sure. And 
we touched down, but the moment we touched down, yeah. and you can tell we, we, we hit on one side of the plane, okay. and we're all working, then we hit the other, we are all over this runway, and I mean, right. they, I don't know if there's one pilot or two pilots up there, but they're both hitting the brakes like simultaneously, like like yeah. the leg press of the century here, trying to bring us to a halt, yeah. bring us to a halt, everyone's cheering and clapping and all this kind of stuff, right, and right. they uh, uh, opened up the, the doors, and they took us off the plane, and they put us on a people mover, okay, yeah. and they brought us back to the airport. Wow! To be put on Another different place. planes, go to our various destinations, stuff like that. So yeah, right. I'd say a lot of people had to clean their, uh, had to take a clean pair of undies out, you know. <laughs> well, you know what? All those people on that plane that survived should thank you, because I honestly thought. My thinking process right now is that the plane was going to go down, but notice I got Dan Severn on here. If I go down, he's going to kick my ass, so we're going to save everyone. <laughs> no, I, I just had to say that like, I want to see it coming. I, I'm not going to sit there and just huddle uh. down and, and, and this, you know, lights go up. <laughs> no, I want to know what, 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 what I got hit by. You know, that's all. True, true. Well, Dan, thank you from very much for coming aboard. Before you plug your shit, I got one question. What is next for the legend Dan Severn? What do you want to do with your next... Career choice yeah, or move? For that, I'm not too sure. I, I'm not going to sit on my laurels. Okay. Um, as for competitions, I always tell people that at 62, most would probably say you're probably be done. Mm. Don't ever count me out. Oh, wow. oh I've, I've, I've already got a few things in the back of my mind, but uh, I'll, I'll announce them when I think it's time for them because I don't, I don't like to put on idle threats. I like to know that when I put on whatever I say, there's going to be follow up to it. Of course. Uh, I, I, the one question that, that I've been asked a lot of times, they're like, dude, they're like, why do you continue to go on and do more and more and more? I go, well, because, because I can and, mm-hmm. I, and I want to. Those, those are the two, two of my responses. Mm-hmm. And they're like, well, what do you want to be remembered for? And uh, I go, I said, I want to be remembered for making a difference. Mm-hmm. Not because I want all this stuff or whatever or a place to whatever. I go, I want to be known that I made a difference because I right. I look at that what I do I don't simply just do for myself I do a lot of things for a lot of other people I bring a lot of other things to the forefront right. I will say stuff that probably most people think but they're afraid to say it I'll say it there you go um, that that comes through uh, that's definitely <laughs> a trait on the separate side they they actually are pretty bullheaded individuals I I met the some of my grand my grandparents stuff like that. I know exactly where I got that trait from. Right, right. <laughs> but uh, there's a there's a lot again a lot of your viewers right there will probably have a, uh, maybe might actually enjoy this. But actually, my great grandfather on mm-hmm. my father's side was French Canadian. Oh, yeah. So uh, again, the people always wonder what ethnicity uh, do you make makes up dance ever? I go, I always tell people, I'm really the all-American mutt. I, I got a little bit of everything in me, right. but I'm the all-American mutt. But then mm-hmm. if you look at, really, I've got German, a lot of German on, on one side, but then I've got uh, French, my one grandfather was 100% French-Canadian. Wow. So, Love it. Well, Dan, where could people find you? Where could people follow you for upcoming news and when you're going to drop all your tidbits? The best, the best way is just, just at my website, dansever.com. All my social media outlets are listed there. Um, there's a, It is under construction right now, but you can still pull up the page, dansever.com. Sever is spelled S-E-V-E-R-N, like Nancy. So dansever.com. Um, and uh, I, I will continue to... 
I will continue to do things. As, as you stated earlier, I had, I've had my own MMA company. I've had my own professional wrestling company, mm-hmm. all on the smaller scales. Uh, media is uh, king. I, I have got so many, so many older uh, media outlets that I need to convert over to what would be easier to put on the internet. So sure. there's, some, there's a big conversion process. Mm-hmm. People are going to be surprised by all stuff I have, but then I also have a lot of instructional type of things that I have put together over the decades that need to be converted over to, you know, the digital era there as well. So I, I, I won't be won't be taking it easy anytime soon. And uh, it, it'll be uh, one of those things that, uh, you know, my better half always asks me all the time, like, why do you continue working so hard? I go, <laughs> I like what, I, I actually, I genuinely like what I do. There you go. And if I, if I like what I do, why not continue doing it? Exactly, because then it's not you know, considered work. Yeah, that's well. That's exactly how I did it. I mean, but people, I always tell people, come and watch me do a seminar. Talk to me beforehand. Right. Then watch the transformation as I walk out onto that mat because that mat to me is it's magical. Mm. I walk out there and I I might be there with twenty, thirty, or more people on the mat. Sure. I don't know them. Mm-hmm. I don't have a clue as to what their background stuff like that. I start every. Similar to say, just a warm up and a stretch, and I welcome questions. I go and I tell them, I go, if you don't ask any questions, it's just going to be the same old cut and dry seminar. I go, right. each seminar I probably say is always different and unique, and it's all based upon give me that first question. Once you ask that first question, that is how every seminar now deviates from the previous one. Mm-hmm. You might have a question on the takedown or being stopping a takedown or, you know, we were down on the ground and then how do you do this? Or maybe you're, uh, how would you defend this from a striker versus a grappler versus, I mean, I love questions. I, I tell them, I go, I, I may not have the exact answer you're looking for. I go, but you might be really surprised at the answer I come back with and how easy it's going to be for you to do. Because I, I, I really pride myself on the fact of how simple I can make techniques and I can teach to a child right? and I can teach to an adult. That's awesome. And for myself, you can find me on Instagram, Twitter, under Finger Styles. You can follow the podcast on Twitter, the podcast app. Email us your thoughts, suggestions, comments, anything you want to get off your chest at the podcast app at gmail.com. No sponsors this week, so the easiest and most important thing to do to support me is to rate, subscribe, review on all major platforms, most specifically Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, SoundCloud, Spotify, and iHeartRadio. And if you're listening for the very first time, please go back. This is my 200th episode, as you see. I've had a lot of wrestlers on. I've had a lot of MMA stars on. The list goes on and on. Go check those episodes out. One last question now. You got to bestow your wisdom because you are the reason a lot of people got into MMA and into wrestling. So to all those youngins out there, what's one piece of advice you could give to them? Well, I always tell people, keep your options over. Never never put all your eggs in one basket. Always have option number B, C, and D. Because it's, uh, even, I mean, Mike Tyson always said, everyone's got a game plan until they get punched in the face. Uh, Well, that's... uh, that, that is also true for the MMA uh, world. Um, everyone's got got that, that game plan there, but I, I, I'm a big believer in options. I've uh, because of certain things that did not go right in my own life, uh, where I I, I, I I moved down to Coldwater, uh, Michigan, originally for a job opportunity. Right. I bought a bigger home, more expensive property, based upon this job opportunity. I went to work. 
And at the end of the first week, I did not have a job. Wow. And so, I mean, I was in a bad situation, and I had to, and I had to make money. So I always tell people, because a lot of people, when I, when I travel, right, especially when I younger, travel, about leaving a lot more thick, thicker and muscular, stuff like that, people are like, are you a football player? And I'm like, well, no, no, I, I did play football at one point in time, but no, and then I go, but I am an athlete. Right. And they're like, uh, well, what, they're like, what exactly do you do? I go, well, I make money the old-fashioned way. <laughs> like, well, what do you mean? I, I beat people up and take it. <laughs> <laughs> and they, they look at you when you say it like that, and I go, they're like, well, in the, in the conversation, they're like, well, they want to turn away and like, right. uh, wait, wait. but I, I use it a lot of time as, Comedy or, or maybe a little bit of shock uh, value. It's it, it, again awesome. the ring name the beast. The the, the the you know the ring name the beast has a lot of negative connotations. Right. Anyone that gets to know Dan Seven knows Dan Seven is not a negative person. I'm a very positive and optimistic type individual. So I had to come up with an acronym mm. for the beast. So the word the yeah T H E stands for Dan Seven. I'm a teacher, humanitarian, and I'm an educator. There you go. Okay. My message to young people is beast. Mm. Believe in yourself. Educate yourself. Adjust your everyday attitude. Study hard and then teach others because you can't take it with you. That's Spread true. the wealth of knowledge. Because I, I, I have all kinds of people that always try to hit me up for money and stuff like that. I'm going, oh, I don't God. even know you. I go... Everyone's got family. I go, if you've got family and you're asking me, and I'm not a stranger or something like that, You've got some real issues, right? So, everyone's got everyone's got family. Okay, well, people say, "No, I got no family." Yeah, everyone's got family. If you don't have family, go back to family friends, and you're asking a complete stranger. You've got some real issues. So, wow. But again, I I tend to rub a lot of people's face into the cow pie of reality. (laughs) And that's perfect. I don't know how else to end it. So, on that note, he's Dan. I'm Steve. This is the podcast. Peace.